Have you looked at the bulletin to see what the title of the sermon is? I want you to look at it because I'm going to say it a few times. I want you to say it with me. The great disappointment was wonderful. Say it again. The great disappointment was wonderful. One more time. The great disappointment was wonderful. I read in a book the other day that says when we get to heaven and we look back on the things that we went through on this earth, those things were among our greatest disappointments. We will see from heaven and look back and say, that was one of my greatest blessings. And that's why we sang that song this morning. My heart can sing. When I pause to remember, a heartache here is just a stepping stone. Now say the title of the sermon one more time. The great disappointment was wonderful. Now, when I started out to be a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and probably for about the first six or seven years, there was one of the doctrines that we teach that down deep in my heart, secretly I wished, wasn't part of our teachings. And when I would preach on the doctrine of the sanctuary, when I would get done preaching about the sanctuary, I would want to say, now, how many of you out there understood what I said? And if anybody raised their hands, I wouldn't want to say, then come up and explain it to me because I don't understand it yet. And not only that, but I have had several friends that I went to school with who have left not only the Seventh-day Adventist ministry, but they've left the Adventist church over the doctrine of the sanctuary. I remember there was one friend. He and I worked together in the furniture factory at college. And when he came time to get married, I drove a thousand miles one way to stand by his side in his wedding. And a year later when I got married, I don't know how far he drove, but he had to drive a ways, and he stood up with me in my wedding. And then we were in seminary together. And then he went to one conference and I went to another. And when we got a chance, I'd stop to see him. That man is not, not only not a Seventh-day Adventist minister anymore, he's not even a Seventh-day Adventist. In fact, he does all that he can to get people to leave the Seventh-day Adventist church. And when I'm having Bible studies with people, uh, I will, may show up at their home. And since the last time I was there with Bible studies with them, someone has said, well, why don't you look on the Internet about Seventh-day Adventists? You'll find a bunch of stuff there. How many know that that's true? And one of the things that they can find there is uh, the attack on this doctrine of the sanctuary. Now, where we live, we've gotten acquainted with some of our neighbors, and uh, pretty soon it comes to the place where they say, what do you do? And I says, well, I'm a preacher. And sometimes they act a little bit afraid, and sometimes they go on with their questions, and I don't mind if people ask me what they do. I tell them I'm a pastor. And then they ask me, what church do you pastor? And I'm not ashamed to tell them that either. It's the Seventh-day Adventist Church over on Green Bay Road. And some of them know about it and some of them don't. But for a long time in my ministry, there was one question I hoped they didn't ask. And that was the question that would start out like this and say, Oh, Seventh-day Adventist, I've read about you on the Internet. Aren't you the church that believed that Jesus was going to come and preached that Jesus was going to come in 1844? And then when he didn't come in 1844... Rather than admit that you were wrong, you came up with this thing called the investigative judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Is that your church? And for a long time, I would grit my teeth. And I hate to tell you this, I would say, well, that was in 1844. The Adventist church didn't come into existence as an organization for 20 years until 1860-something. 
And so that was really a Methodist guy. <laughs> That's a cop-out. Because you have to admit it, the roots of the Seventh-day Adventist church are grounded in the great disappointment of 1844. How many know that? And for years, it just bothered the dickens out of me. And this is why, as I said, I have had friends leave the ministry, leave the church, because they didn't understand it. I really want to understand it. And I'll tell you the conclusion that I'm coming to and the conclusion that I hope that you come to by the time I finish this sermon, and that is this. The great disappointment had to happen. It was part of prophecy. And if our church had not gone through the great disappointment, we would not have God's final message. Now, let me give you a couple of instances where the Adventist church was not the only time that preached something, and it was God who was leading them to preach it, and it didn't happen. How many have heard of a guy whose name was Jonah? How many heard of Jonah? Did Jonah have a message to preach? Yes. Did he want to preach it? No. He was scared to death to preach it. And he ran the other way. And you know the story of the great fish and, and uh, the fish took him where he needed to be. And he thought, I better give this message. And he went there and he thought, surely the people in Nineveh, they are such horrible people. I'm, go- I'm going to be killed. But it's better than being swallowed by a fish and digested in his stomach. So he went and he started walking up and down the streets of Nineveh saying, 40 days, you'll all be toast. And what was the result of his message? What was the result? They repented. And God didn't have to do. How many have discovered as you read through the Bible, there are times that God gives terrible forecasts, terrible prophecies. And it's not that he really wants to do it. It's that he wants to get people's attention. They'll pay attention. And there were some people in Nineveh. In fact, at that time, it was, the whole, it was later the people rebelled again. But I believe that there were people who found God and will be saved in heaven from Nineveh because of the message that Jonah preached. Amen? Amen. And so when people say, well, the Adventists were wrong about 1844 because what they said was going to happen didn't happen. I say, maybe so, but God still used it to get people to pay attention through, just like God used the message of Jonah to get people to pay attention to his message so that he could save them. So how many recognize that God will sometimes scare you that God will sometimes cause things that will cause you pain, either physically or emotionally, just because He wants to save you. Amen? And I was talking about this one time, and one of the persons of conversation says, well, God has to do that because God is in the business of saving people, and He loves them so much, He'll do whatever He has to do in order to save them. Amen? So the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I want you to, to go to Revelation chapter 10, and I want you to put your bulletin in there because that's where we're going to come back to. And after you get your bulletin or a piece of paper or the ribbon in your Bible in Revelation chapter 10, I want you to go back to the book of Daniel chapter 12. And what I want to show you from Daniel 10, I'm sorry, Daniel 12 and Revelation 10, that they are parallel passages. That Daniel 12, Revelation 10 have very much to do with each other. So now I'm going to start in Revelation 10. I'm going to start in Daniel 10. And I'm going to read a little bit, and I want you to take mental notes and maybe even underline if you do that in your Bible. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as there never was, since there was a nation, even at that time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now, that's an old sermon. I remember that one. People written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust 
shall awaken some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Verse 4, famous Adventist text. But thou, O Daniel, do what? Shut up the words, seal the book, even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Now, put something in Daniel 12 and go to Revelation 10. But we'll go back to Daniel 12. Oh, I need to put something in here too. All right. Revelation 10, starting verse 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was about his head, and his face whereas the words the sun, his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand, what? A little book, what? Opened. Now, pause right there and go back to Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, you have a book and the angel says what? Close it. Now, when and the angel tells the book is closed, what does that mean in Bible prophecy? Did Daniel understand some of the prophecies? You read through Daniel 12 and, and there's things that Daniel wrote that he didn't understand. So in Bible prophecy, when a book is closed, it means you're not going to understand it right now. Are there things that God has said that we don't understand? He closed it. But when you come over to Revelation chapter 10, you find an angel and he has a book. But what's the difference between the book in Revelation 12 and the book in... I'm sorry. 12 and 10. Daniel 12 and Revelation 10. What's the difference? In Revelation 10, the book is opened, right? Now, look again in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 2, after it says he has the little book in heaven, he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now go back to Daniel 12. And notice what it says in verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river, the other that side of the bank of the river. So what you have in Revelation 10 and and Daniel 12, the angel that has the book, He's standing by water and land. How many can see that? How many can already see that these two chapters of the Bible kind of complement each other? The same thing is happening. Then back in Daniel 12 again, uh, here's this angel with his feet in water and land. And verse 6 says, And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? See, the book's closed. When's it going to be open? Verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, which held up his hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, it shall be for a time, times and half a time, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, and shall things be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. See, didn't understand. And said, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Now go back to Revelation 10. And in verse 3, it says, And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, when he hath cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So you have this angel, water, land, the book open, and in Daniel 12, he's talking about the time of the end, right? Seal it up to the time of the end. When you get to Revelation 10, it's talking about things that are going to be happening at the time of the end. Now, Let me tell you ahead of time the conclusion I have come to, and you can see if you think that my conclusion is the correct conclusions. I believe that Revelation chapter 10 is a prophecy about the great disappointment. And there's several reasons I believe that. Number one, the prophecy that started the 1844 movement came out of the book of 
Daniel. Because there was a man whose name was William Miller who at the time, well, actually when he started studying the Bible, he was an agnostic, which means he was almost an atheist, but not quite. And he says, I don't know if there's a God or not. But he was trying to persuade his family and his friends that there wasn't a God. And he thought, the way I'm going to persuade them that the Bible is wrong is it makes prophecies. So he went through and he started studying the prophecies. And for several years, he studied the prophecies. And by the time he got done studying the prophecies, he not only believed in God, that the Bible was the word of God, but as he went through Daniel and Revelation, he came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to come. Now, the text that he read was Daniel 8, 14, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time with, but it says, Unto 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And as he did the study, as if you've gone through Adventist evangelistic meetings, which I'm not going to do right now, he correctly claimed, came to the conclusion that sometimes in the... 1843, 1844, Jesus was going to come because he did the math. And if you've ever studied those, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, all those different processes of Daniel 9, you'll recognize. And there's other people came to the same conclusion. 1843, 1844 is going to be a significant time in history. And he misinterpreted what it means to cleanse, cleanse the sanctuary. He thought all sin is going to be done away with in 1844. That means Jesus is going to come. And... That's what he was preaching. And he didn't want to do it, just like Jonah didn't want to do it. And if you've read the story about William Miller, it says that he'd studied these things and he thought, this is right, and he couldn't come to any other conclusion, but he didn't want to tell anybody. And he was under conviction he should tell somebody. And so he says, Lord, I will tell it, I will preach this if someone comes to my house and asks me to preach. And he was a farmer, not a preacher, and he hadn't been asked to preach. And he thought, I get out of it then. And within 10 minutes after he'd prayed that prayer, his nephew showed up at his farmhouse door, knocked on the door, and says, Uncle Bill, the preacher's sick, and he's not going to be able to preach tomorrow. Would you come over and preach in our church? And William Miller didn't say anything. He was just mad, and he walked out of the the farmhouse and walked about a block over to a, a maple grove. And for four hours he out there, and he was angry with God that he'd answered his prayer like that, and historians, Adventist historians says a farmer walked into the maple grove and a preacher came out. And he went and people listened and the word spread. And within a few years, there were over 50,000 people who believed that Jesus was going to come in 1844. Jesus didn't come in 1844, obviously. And you never saw such a bunch of disappointed people in all your life. Of course, you saw a lot of relieved people too who were making fun of the people who were disappointed. Because when, they, when the sun came up on the morning of October 23, 1844, and Jesus wasn't there, these people were so disappointed. And most of them went back to their old churches or gave up Christianity at all, but there was a small group of them that said, it seemed like God was really leading us. Where did we go wrong? And the Holy Spirit led those people to start studying the Bible again so that they could see that the date was right, but the event was wrong. I'll tell you what I believe the event was. God wanted to start a message that would prepare people for the second coming of Jesus. Amen? And when it says the sanctuary will be cleansed, I ask myself the question as they did, why does the sanctuary need to be cleansed? What makes the sanctuary dirty? And when you study through the sanctuary service, you'll discover that what makes the sanctuary dirty are the sins of God's people. It's not the sins of unrepentant people. 
they don't get in the sanctuary. And the way that the sins of God's people get in the sanctuary is that they, in repentance, come and they place their hands on the head of the Lamb and they confess their sins. And unfortunately, what a lot of the Jews thought is God likes mutton because I've sinned, but I'm going to kill this lamb and give it to God and God likes burned mutton. What God wanted them to understand is that the sins of the guilty were transferred from the guilty sinner to the innocent lamb and the lamb paid the penalty for the sinner and he was forgiven and goes free and the lamb dies. How many know that that's the truth that was trying to be taught? But you see... God wanted to teach more than just the fact that we were justified. And I won't explain what justified means because you should know by now. But he also wanted them to teach that he could sanctify them. He pronounces them just. And then he begins a work in their life that makes them to be as he's already said that they are. Are you with me? And that's what the cleansing of the sanctuary is. And if you go back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus where it talks about this, it says on the day of atonement. God is going to cleanse His people from their sins. And so what makes the sanctuary dirty is what? The sins of who? God's people. And so when He cleanses the sanctuary, He is not just cleansing a geographical location in heaven, but at the same time that He is cleansing our record of sin there, He has started a message on this earth that will have the the effect on God's people. And how many see when you read the message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, God is calling us to higher ground. He wants us to spend more time putting God's Word than less time putting junk in our minds. He wants our bodies to be healthy, and so He sent a message that makes us healthy, and Adventists who follow that message are healthier people. Amen? And all of that message has to do with God's work among His people, and that is what our message is. So, let's go back to Revelation chapter 10. And look in verse 3, And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars... Now, if you've studied about lions, the reason that the lion roars is because he wants to scare the prey. And I have been in a zoo, and I happen to be walking by the lion's cage just as he roars. And it is, you just kind of jump back. And uh, if you've studied about lions, I hate to do this, but when lions go hunting, is it the women or the men lions that catch the animals? It's the women. Because what the male lion does, he goes upwind, so the wind is blowing, and the, what they want to catch is here, and so the, the guy lion is up here, and the animals down here that they want to catch can smell him. And they think, oh my, there's lions, and they get scared, and then he roars. They take off running, and they run right into where the ladies are, and the ladies jump on them and kill them, and then they eat, all right? So when it says a lion roars, the reason it says that is because the message that William Miller didn't want to preach that God gave him, the first thing it did was scare people. And you know the Bible says the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. I, as I said in previous sermons, I like to meet people who are concerned about the nearness of coming to Jesus. I like to meet people who are concerned and afraid about their salvation because I've got news for them. And what is the news I want to give them? I want them to be filled with gratitude because this is what Jesus has done to save you. And the real motive for obedience is joy and peace and love. But the fear is what gets you to pay attention. And so this was William Miller's message. He caused people to be afraid. And then notice, And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And so the voices, the thunders, spoke something. And notice verse 4, it says, And when the thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. When something is sealed up, what does it mean? 
Don't understand it. And so the John the Revelator was about to write down what the seven thunders said. And the, God, and the angel said, no. Now, how many like it when somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I know something I got to tell you. And you say, oh, what is it? Oh, uh, not now. You want to grab them by the collar and put them up against the wall and says, if you're not going to tell me, don't even tell me you know something. How many are with me? And yet here, there's something in the Bible that God is saying, I want you to know that I know something, but I'm not going to tell you yet. Is that what it's saying? Seven thunders uttered their voices. I was about to write what the seven thunders said. And then the angel says, nope, don't write it. Because what the seven thunders were saying was, we're giving this message of fear to do its work. And you're going to preach that Jesus is going to come in 1844, but he's not really going to come. But the fact that you think he's going to come is going to get you busy reading your Bible and getting close to God. Is that good? But had they known, had the people in Nineveh been told ahead of time, this guy's going to come along, he's going to preach a message, he's going to scare you, but it's not really going to happen, they wouldn't have repented. And when God sent William Miller to preach the message, Jesus is going to come October 22, 1844, and they looked at the text, and they looked at the math, and they looked at it, and they thought he's going to come. God wanted them to believe that he was going to come even though he wasn't going to come. How many can see that that's what the, probably the thunders were saying? Here's the message that scares you like a lion roaring. And then later they found out, all right? So did God know he wasn't going to come in October 22, 1844? Did God know that? Did he want the people to believe that? Does God sometimes cause crisis in order to accomplish something that needs to be accomplished? Now, I hate to tell you this story, but I'm so full of stories. But uh, we lived over in Bethel. And if you've ever been over the Bethel, the house, at least at the time that the pastors lived in, was the front door was on a porch, take a couple steps down. But there's a hill. And you go around back, and there's a door down there too on the, on the lower level, and the garage is down there. Now, my wife is, is, is neat and tidy. I married a good lady to be my wife, and she likes things neat and tidy, and if there's clutter around, she can't stand it. And so the house is usually pretty nice, unless she's a teacher, and it's a week before Christmas, and she's in charge of the Christmas program at the church school. Then things kind of, but I try to help her. Anyway, but the garage is mine. And that particular house had a wood-burning stove, and I had ordered a, a load of, of wood, but it wasn't already cut. It was eight feet long pieces, and I set myself up a little uh, sawhorse in the garage. How many of you have ever burned wood to keep yourself warm? How many knows that around? How many knows? How many of you know that around the place where you cut the wood, it's always kind of messy? But I said I didn't want to saw wood outside, and I didn't have a chainsaw, and I thought I'm going to get some exercise, and I'll just cut enough for each day in the garage. And so the garage was getting kind of messy, and it wasn't just the sawdust and everything, but how many men know what garages get like? All right. Well, my son calls. He's coming home from college, and he's bringing his girlfriend with him. And I know that when they come, he's not going to park out front and come to the front door. He's going to park where the family parks down below, and he's going to come through the door. And the door you've got to come through is the garage door. And I had been intending to get the garage clean for a long time, but when my son said he's going to bring his girlfriend home, I thought if she comes through the garage door, which I know they're going to come through, and she sees what a messy job, she's going to think, oh, his son's going to grow up and be a slob. I don't want to marry him. So I got busy, and I cleaned the garage. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You want to do something, you want to do something, you don't do it, you don't do it, and all of a sudden, company's coming, and all of a sudden, you have time, and you get it done. Now do you know what God did there? He, need, he knew he needed to cause a crisis to get people to do what he wanted them to do. 
And the last church I pastored, somebody gave me a box, and in it were little round wooden discs, about as big round as a silver dollar, and it just said on it, to it. And uh, he says, now you have a round to it, so you can get busy. You know, I'll do it when I get around to it. Well, you've got the round to it now. How many recognize God causes his crisis to get things accomplished, and when the fear is past, he doesn't do what he's going to do? I see that as 1844. Are you with me? And this is what I think was happening here. Now, verse 5. And the angel which I saw up on the sea and upon the earth lifted his hand to heaven. And what did the angel say? What was the message that came out of the book that is now open? Verse 6. And swear by him that liveth forever ever who created heaven and the things therein and the earth and the things therein and the sea and the things that are in that what? Time should what? Was that William Miller's message? Was that the message that God gave to William Miller? Time is almost over. Time shall be no longer. Was that the 1844 message? And I believe that Revelation chapter 10 is a prophecy of the great disappointment that the Adventist church went through. And I have commentaries by, that are not Adventist commentaries. And they, in some places, have some very good things. But when you look in those commentaries and you come to Revelation chapter 10, they basically all agree, we don't have a clue what this means. The only commentary that you're going to find that believes they know what this Revelation 10 means is the Adventist commentary. And the sermon that I'm preaching today, if you want to know where I got it, go to the commentary because this is what it says. And then in verse 7, after the angel said, Time will be no more, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God is going to be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So here he's hearing this. It's going to be finished. It's over. Verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which stands upon the scene upon the water. And I went unto the angel in verse 9 and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, eat it, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall in thy mouth be as sweet as honey. And several years ago I preached this sermon and the title I put down is a 160-year bellyache. Because this has caused pain to some Adventist. This very thing. Amen? And so in verse 10 it says, I, ate, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up. In my mouth it was sweet as honey. As soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. So the message that the followers of William Miller believed was sweet. And when October 22, the sun came up on that day, they thought by nighttime we're going to be sitting around the, the table. We're going to be with Jesus. How many recognize that's sweet? And one of the things you hear me say is, I want you to walk around believing that if your life were to end today because of what Jesus did for you on Calvary, the next thing you would know is Jesus would be here in time to go to heaven. And when you start believing that, you will discover that you can be happy even when things are going bad. And Jesus, I believe, wants Christians to believe that because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is my what? That's where Christians get strength from the joy. The fear is the beginning of wisdom, but perfect love casts fear out so that we can serve God not out of fear, not out of obligation, but purely out of joy. And when you believe that if your life were in today, the next thing you'd know, Jesus would be here and you'd go to heaven, you can smile. Even though you still got tears in your eyes, you can think, it's going to be all right. I know I'm going through hard times now, but it's going to be all right because God is in control. Amen? And so they ate the book, they believed the message, it's like they say they swallowed the message hook, line, and sinker. 
And then when Jesus didn't come and the sun came up on the morning of October 23, 1844, their belly was bitter. Amen? And they spent some months studying and weeping, this small group of people, and they were led to restudy the sanctuary, as I've already said. And notice then in verse 11 of Revelation 10, it says, Here they are with the bellyache. But the angel says, he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nation, tongues, and people. And another word for the word prophesy is to preach. So here you've been preaching about time shall be no more. Then you go through this bitter experience, this great disappointment. And after they've gone through the great disappointment and suffered a bellyache, then the angel says, I want you to preach some more. And that is what God told those people who came out of the great disappointment. I have done this to get you ready because I have a message and you see, the message that was being preached is the sanctuary be cleansed. So they went back and studied the sanctuary. Now, I want you to know something, that the divisions of the chapters were not part of the original Bible. How many know that? In fact, the verses weren't there. When they were writing this, they didn't put down chapter 10, verse 1. They just wrote like they were writing a letter. And fortunately, somebody came along and says, it'll be easier for Pastor Stauffer to preach and show people where he's preaching if we divide this thing up into chapters and verses. How many glad they did that? But the chapter heading, chapter 11, wasn't there in the original. It just goes right on. And notice, right after Revelation 10, verse 11, it says, I want you to go out and preach. You get to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, and he's telling him what to preach. Now, follow carefully, verse 1 and 2. And there was given to me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Measure. Take their measure. God is measuring God's people. We call it the investigative judgment, don't we? And so the message that the people who came out of the great disappointment is that God's people, are not, not the world, that's going to be judged later. God's people are being judged now, right? That was the message. Notice in verse 2, But the court which is without the temple, leave out, measure not, for it's given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I won't go into time, it's already past 12. But how many can see here in Revelation chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12 that the great disappointment that the Adventist church was born out of was supposed to happen? And when people tell you and when people tell me, oh, are you the church that believe Jesus is going to come in 1844 and he didn't come? And, and I says it was prophesied. And if your church hadn't gone through that disappointment, then you're in the wrong church because God's final church is going to go through a great disappointment. Amen? And you see, it's not unlike God to do this, to have a group of followers who believe Him, but they misunderstand some of the prophecies. This is not the first time it's happened. It happened 2,000 years ago. There was a little group of men. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Were they right? They were right. But they were wrong about what the Messiah was going to do. And this idea of Him being crucified was the farthest thing from mind because they thought when the Messiah comes, He's going to raise up an army, He's going to drive out the Romans, and we are going to be the most important people in the world forever. How many know that's what they believed? And you talk about a great disappointment. The first great disappointment, well, not the first, that was back in Garden of Eden. But this disappointment is they thought Jesus was Messiah and they're looking at him and he's dying. And when the priest and the Pharisees were coming by and they say, come down from the cross and we'll believe, I'm sure the disciples were saying, yes, 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 come down, show them. But Jesus didn't come down and he died. You talk about a great disappointment because the two men on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with them, but he didn't want them to know who he was. Does God hide things from us sometimes? 
And as they were walking to Emmaus, he says, why are you so sad? And they said, are you a stranger around here? Don't you know what's happened this last week? So he says, what things? So he explained the whole thing about himself. We thought that he was the Messiah, and now he's dead, and after all this, it's been three days. And you can hear tears in the voice, can't you? And then Jesus acted like he was going to go on. This is important. If you don't beg Jesus to be with you, he won't be with you because he acted like he's going on and he only stayed with him and told them the rest of the story when they begged him. And it says they, I can't remember the word there, but it gives you the idea that they almost grabbed him by the arm and drug him into the house when he acted like he's going on. We want to hear more. And if you don't want to hear more, you're not going to hear more. You have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have to want what God has to give you. Otherwise, he is going to pass you by and go to those who do. Amen? And you see, there were 50,000 people who believed that Jesus was going to come in 1840. When he didn't come, they gave it up. And there was a small group that says, but we know God was with us. We could recognize, just like the two on the road, they recognized this is God's message. We want to hear more. And they studied more. And they came to the conclusion that the date was right. God was going to start a work that would bring about a group of people that would prepare people for the second coming of Jesus. Amen? And the message has to do with the cleansing of the sanctuary, the judgment of God's people. How many can see that? And my friends who have left the church won't listen to me when I try to tell them this. But if your church, the church that you belong to, did not go through a great disappointment, then it's not the church that the disciples followed because after they found out they were wrong, they went out and started preaching the truth. And people says, why don't you just admit you're wrong? He's dead. Why don't you just admit he was wrong? No, he wasn't wrong. Why don't you just admit the message that God gave the million Miller was wrong? He wasn't wrong. He misunderstood it. He was disappointed. We were disappointed. But God has given a message. Then when you go through Revelation, I mean, yeah, Revelation 11, you'll find prophecy about the Bible, how that before 1844, people started not paying attention to the Bible again. After the Reformation, the Reformation had gone cold and it was formal. And I heard in Sabbath school class, they just discern, the, the preacher would just read the sermon that had been handed down from them. And, it just go, and they thought, if we go through the message, and it's talking about the two witnesses, the Old and the New Testament, being raised up. And by the time you get to the end of Revelation chapter 11, these two witnesses are witnessing again. And notice when you get to verse 19. Remember I told you about the, uh, the thunders they didn't understand? When you get to Revelation 11, 19... The people who've gone through this point are understanding they're starting preaching and they're explaining about the thunders. Let me show it to you here. Verse 19. And the temple of God was open where? Where? In heaven. And you see, and that's what they were preaching. All this thing with 1844 had to do with the temple in heaven. And when the, heaven, when the temple in heaven was open, what does that mean? The message that was being preached would help people understand the message of the sanctuary. Amen? And then... There was seen in the, his temple what? The ark of his what? Now what is in the ark of his testament? The Ten Commandments. And you see this people that went through the great disappointment and then started preaching. Well, we see now it was the sanctuary. What else are they going to be preaching? They're going to lead people to look into the most holy place. They're going to lead people's attention to the ark of the covenant in which has the testament, the Ten Commandments of God. We should be humble about this, but we should not be ashamed of the fact that the message that has made the Adventist church, the Adventist church came from God. Amen? And then notice here, you're looking at the temple that's open. You're understanding the temple that's open. You're seeing the Ark of the Covenant, and there was lightnings and voices and 
thunders. And these people were explaining, this is what we thought was going to happen. God was using our misunderstanding, but this is what the voices were saying. God isn't really going to come in 1844. He is going to start a message that leads people to understand the sanctuary and brings people to the most holy place of the temple and shows them the Ten Commandments. We can say with absolute certainty the message that the Adventist church teaches is correct. And people who haven't, don't belong to a church that didn't go through a disappointment are in the wrong church because that's, unfortunately, how God has to start His messages. He's got to shake people up first. Amen? Now, the scripture that was read, I want you to read that because it says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we preached this to you. We were preaching the pure word of God. And there are Adventists now who are looking back at the roots and the beginning of Adventists think, well, there were just a bunch of of simple farmers. We've got to modernize the Seventh-day Adventist church. We do not need to abandon our message. Amen? Because that is the same thing they said about the disciples. Oh, they're just simple fishermen. They didn't have education. How can we believe that? We've got education now. We know what... They were in tune with God. They were the people that God chose. And God chose simple people and farmers and poor people to start this message. And what they gave us, the message they gave us from God, is the message for today. Amen? Now, our opening song was what? Does anybody remember what our opening song was? He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. And then in there it says, through troubled sea or... or, is still leading me. He has been leading us all along if we'll just follow. And you go through hard times, the closing song is 99. Be not dismayed, whatever be tied. God will take care of you because the things that dismay you might be the very things that God is using to bring you closer to Him. While we were singing this song, it reminded me of a part of the sermon I left out I got to put in right here. Especially when it says, all you may need, He will provide. God will take care of you. The people who believe that Jesus is going to come on October 22 didn't harvest their potato crop. In Maine, grows, New England grows a lot of potatoes. How many have read this story? But all the other people harvest.